See what little kids get to play with now? They got good toys now. You spend all day in room with a freaking extra sketch. That's bored. You spend a rainy day with a light bright. That's as bored as it gets right there. Just Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome to another episode of Baby Got Backstory. This is Mark Gutman, and thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in and listen to the Baby Got Backstory podcast. I love doing this podcast, and I hope you enjoy listening to it too. You know, ever since I can remember, my father and I always bonded over comedy. In our case, it was movies, things like Caddyshack and Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield, the Blues Brothers, and Animal House with John Belushi, and oh, Porky's. I can still picture my dad, my dad laughing. No, no, he's like wheezing <laughs> with delight as, as the kid wrapped up as a mummy runs around screaming, boogie, woogie, 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 boogie, woogie, woogie, woogie. And uh, not always the best content for a little kid, but it always allowed me to see my dad in a different light, something different than his serious dad or work persona, a person who just loved to laugh. And it was something that connected us and bonded us and still does to this day. We still are really connected over this idea of comedy and laughing together over movies that uh, really touch our souls. And, and we all, all of us as humans, we, we like to laugh because it feels good. And it feels good because the drama and the contrast created by a good joke is in itself a mini story. There's conflict, transformation, surprise, delight, and resolution. And our minds are always scrambling to understand the nuance and to make meaning out of this this mini story that's forming, just like in a bigger story. So on today's show, we get to hear from my good friend and professional comedian, Matt Kazam. And Matt is a Las Vegas headlining comedian with 29 years of experience. He's performed over 6,000 shows in 42 states and in seven countries, including 1,000 corporate events. This guy is the definition of a working comedian. And he's most well known for his one-man comedy show, 40 is the New 20, that played at the old Riviera before they blew it up, and we'll get to that in a moment. And that show was an instant success. It became Las Vegas' must-see show month after month. And Matt's energetic style and his witty observations and unassuming charm are the driving forces behind his unique and hilarious comedy and learning events. Matt's story is similar to mine. He got into comedy because of his father. And I know you're going to get a lot out of Matt's insights and his teachings on how comedy can help you in everyday life. This is Matt Kazam. Anybody ever fly the little plane? That little... And sometimes the sound goes... Like, what the hell is that silence? That is the scariest second of your life. Because I don't know about aviation, but I know good, not so good. The second I hear that sound, I look around for people I might have to eat if we go down. Then I realize I'm the one they're going to eat if we go down. So Matt, thank you for coming on the show. Totally, totally appreciate it. Love uh, that you're going to be sharing your story with the Baby Got Backstory audience. First of all, I love the name. When I, you know, when I saw the name, I go, you know what? This it's perfect because everybody takes themselves so seriously uh, in the you know kind of guru space and and uh, you know I just dug the name and and love what you're doing because uh, 
as someone who's taken something kind of from the entertainment world and crossed over to the business world, uh, you know, we're kind of both have that in, in, in common. I've been using the power of story pretty much my whole life. So uh, I, I, get, I get it and, and understand why it's valuable to people. Absolutely. I can't wait to, to dive a little deeper. And, uh, you know, first of all, thanks for referring to me as a guru. I think you might be the, <laughs> the one person that's ever done that. So you hear that, everybody? I'm a guru, according Absolutely. To, to Matt Kazan. But Matt, um, you know, where I'd like to start is, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself? And specifically, why don't we go way back? Why don't you tell me about young Matt Kazan, maybe, you know, around seven, eight years old? What was life like for you? I actually, my story, you know, I mean, everybody's story goes back to the womb, but mine actually, there were conscious things that were done even when I was in the womb to make me who I am today. I had a father who was a crazy, super comedy fan, and uh, he used to play comedy records. My brothers and sisters are both lawyers and doctors. He played jazz for them. But for me, he played 2,000-year-old man records when I was in the womb and Don Rickles and Buddy Hackett and Red Fox and things that, that even a, a, you know, a 10-year-old should be listening to. I'm listening prenatally in, in the womb. And uh, by the time I was three years old, I was already performing for family and friends. You know, wanted to be a comedian my whole life. But at three years old, performing for family and friends. At six years old, I'm actually making money off of it, performing at other kids' birthday parties and actually in mafia social clubs in New York City. I mean, every kid in the neighborhood was either a bag man or a number runner. But me, they let me sweep up and just tell them jokes all day and they'd give me a buck here, a quarter there. And at 10 years old, my parents take me to Vegas and I see my first comedy show, Joan Rivers and Shecky Green at the Riviera. Knew right then that that's what I wanted to do with my life. 35 years later, I got my own show in the same room that I saw the show when I was 10 years old. Now, two years later, they blow the casino up. But that's the part of the story you got to block out. <laughs> what were those bits like back in the day when you were six years old doing them oh, for the number runners? What were the, the jokes? Those, I mean, pretty much, I mean, for me, it was always like kind of in the moment because something I learned pretty early on is it didn't really matter about my sense of humor. It was about me understanding how can I make them laugh? You know, what 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 are these guys all going to, you know, find, find amusing instead of, because I think that that's the problem with, humor in in business is people think about it as the art form where as a comedian i would just go up there and i would just perform my act and and the audience would either like it or they wouldn't and then i would build a niche maybe of people who more people who liked it than than maybe didn't like it um but early on i realized that you know it wasn't about me it was about them so first joke i ever wrote was about peace and i remember it so vividly even though i was three years old and it was just about how at three years old, I was amazed that we ate peas. And then after they came out, they were still peas, you know? So, I mean, you know, not very highbrow stuff, but, uh, um, you know, and it was a lot of physical stuff. And, and, you know, I used to do parodies. I don't know if you remember the old Coke commercial, but people used to love with Mean Joe Green. You're about my age. You probably remember. You look oh, totally, up. totally. You know, yeah. so I used to play all the characters in that and act it all out and make it funny, you know, where, you know, that was a commercial. And I understood that that was you know, probably not the way it would happen if it was in the real world. You know, what would Mean Joe Green do to that kid, you know, when he threw him his jersey? So, you know, most of it was that. But, you know, it, it was pretty much, you know, bodily functions, you know. Uh, you know, the word anus came up a lot, I'm sure. And uh, uh, But then, you know, at, at six years old, th then I'm realizing even, you know, things that even a six-year-old shouldn't understand about the power of this, um, that I can use it to get what I want. You know, I mean, not just if I can make them laugh, but maybe I can make my teachers laugh and I can do less work. Or, you know, if I haven't gotten trouble sent to the principal's office, even at six years old, I knew if I could make him laugh, he would, he would let me off. So, uh, you know, it was, it was really, like, you know, I can't remember that, that the material was that, that great, but the actual science of it, I was developing at, at a very young age. 
Yeah. And you, you said something, I, I want to go back just a second that I think is just so golden and so important that um, you said, it's not about me, it's about them. And that realization was able to transform your relationship with the audience. And I think that whenever we're telling any sort of story or communicating uh, in general, it typically, when we take a moment to think about our audience first and ourselves second, uh, the results are always so much better. But, you know, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Uh, you know, absolutely. Even with, you know, when you're talking about the movies, you know, I know you have a screenwriting background. You know, the reason why your stories, regular people's stories don't work is they don't think about the audience. They only think about what they're going to say, how they remember it. And the reason those stories work on their friends is that they know all the characters. They know the backstory. They know your motivation. They know who you are. But strangers don't. And those stories are just too long. So when I tell people to start to, you know, really cut it down and, and be a, be wordsmiths and be more effective, find the right word that can do the job of 10, you know, just because, you know, now guys like you and me, they can't, they can't dismiss us. They need our science because it's engage or die. You know, the, so if you don't put the audience first, you're basically just guessing at it, you know, basically hoping that your words and, and, and the way that you're presenting them are going to make a connection. But if you could be more strategic about it and go, what do I know about this audience? Are they a group of lawyers? If I'm doing a talk in front of a group of lawyers, that knowing that little piece of information and, and using that as you, you know, construct the material will only help you. Maybe, you know, the demographics, the age, you know, um, you know, if it's an older group, I don't curse a lot when I do a show because I always think about them. So the more variables I can put into the, the, the equation ahead of time only means I'm going to be more successful at the end. Um, but I would say it's like, you know, like the expression being too close to the elephant. Whenever people give a talk or they're, they're, they're thinking about branding or whatever, they're only thinking about, you know, their thoughts and, and how what they think about it and never even really consider the audience where that's the first part of the equation when I'm putting it together. Yeah. And I think that's golden, Matt, we're in that, like, I don't think you're suggesting that you change the core of who you are. And I know you don't change your core style, the way you tell you how you approach comedy, but you are able to massage it a bit, you know, depending, you know, if you have an older audience, if you have a certain you know level of professional, I think that that's a real big takeaway to, to really think about that. You know, I think a lot of people get hung up on this idea that they don't want to change or they don't want to be like inauthentic or they don't want to not be who they are by thinking about the audience, but that's not what you're saying at all. You're saying, you know, the opposite is true, right? You can still maintain your core essence by thinking about the audience and um, tweaking your material appropriately. Absolutely. Because, you know, I mean, that's the that's the advantage. I mean, other people would look at it, like I said, first of all, when you get up there and speak in front of them and, it, and when it comes to comedy, you're, you're your most authentic self anyway. These days, the audience will see right through it. Um, you know, and then there's continuity, as you know, from a screenwriting background, at some point, you're going to break the continuity and they're going to go, you know, there's one guy, that mutual friend of ours, Derek Coburn, I was working with. And Derek opens up his talks by saying, you know, I'm really excited to be here. I don't usually, um, you know, I hope I get through this okay, because I don't do a lot of talks uh, over the course of the year, because there's something that uh, my pastor at my church told me is that you should try to be the most famous person in your house. Now, opening up with that, he's given the audience, you know, a lot of information on him. You know, I mean, we all have to kind of define our character when we get up there the final point of view that matters, whether it's branding or, or speaking or anything like that. Now, if 10 minutes later, Derek was like, well, I'm going to get out of here and go to Vegas and hang out with my buddies at a strip club. The audience will be like, hey, 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 we think we already bought into the fact that your character was you're a man of faith, a man of family. And then there's a breaking continuity. So I, I, I think anytime you go up there, you're going to be your most authentic self. If you 
are willing to do that. But massaging the material and finding a better way for these people to be engaged um, and, and a better way to be drawn in as opposed to, hey, I'm going to do what I want, hope they like it. I don't see how that works in any situation. So, yeah, I think you're going to be your most authentic, your genuine self uh, and, and gain their trust and, and, and credibility and all the things that you want to do and all the powerful things that story does, which I'm sure you've covered in other podcasts. Um, but, you know, it breaks through to the subconscious where every long term memory, every feeling, every emotion lives. So you're going to accomplish what you want to do if you do it the right way and, and get there a lot quicker. That was a great example that you just gave, a real life example of a, of a routine. It's that, look, we can't show up and be frenetic in front of our customers either. We have to know who we are. We have to play a character to some extent and be our brand, right? And that doesn't mean, when I say play a character, I don't mean be inauthentic or, or not be yourself, but we just have to show up as they expect us to show up yeah, and continue, absolutely. continue to do so and not be all over the map, uh, which, which creates confusion, which creates, you know, use the word continuity, but you know, they're the same thing. It's just, it, it's a, it's a pattern interrupt where we say, you know, something doesn't smell right. Like I mean, my spidey senses are up. And then all of a sudden it becomes this issue of trust where you've broken that with your audience and they don't trust uh, what they're hearing and they don't believe it and you've lost them. Yeah. And broken the engagement. I always say, you know, you, we work hard in the beginning um, to do a lot of things when I work with speakers or comedians or, or whatever their aspirations are on stage is that we fuse them into this being of energy and then we kind of make the connection. And as long as you don't do anything to break the connection, to scare them, then you'll have it the whole time and you can feel it as, as it's going through. And I work with uh, car dealers, for example. So I go in and train the, train the sales staff. But understanding the set of expectations your audience brings to the equation is, is the, a huge measure for success. I mean, you can, you can dictate the outcome because when people go to buy a car, they they have they have an idea in their in their mind. Now it could be from guys like you in Hollywood at one point that have that have created that narrative in their brain. But that's what they're bringing to the expectation. A lot of them don't do test drives anymore because they go, ah, you know, maybe not worth it. And I'm like, you have a sit, you have an opportunity to sit in a car, which is the most intimate, I think, sales situation that's out there. Be able to take a test drive with these people, and you look at it as a burden instead of an opportunity. But they are expecting. A test drive with the with the with the uh, with the salesman. So you know you understanding how they bring that. Whether it's I'm working with people who are front desk agents in, in casinos here in Las Vegas. When people come there, that's when the experience starts. So using story and humor to to improve the customer experience and understanding you know if you don't meet or exceed their expectations, you're, you're not going to make the sale. You know it's not going to it's not going to help the help the brand. No, it's such a good point. And uh, if the audience is anything like me, they're expecting, they, they want to hear more about how you got into this comedy game. So I want to, you know, keep sure. keeping the audience in, in mind. I want to go back there and sure, sure. I, I, I want to go back to that moment where, you know, that defining moment, that key moment where you were sitting in Vegas and you just knew that you wanted to do this. I mean, can you, can you take us back there and relive it a little bit? Sure. I mean, I, we, it's, and back then the Riviera was, was it. I mean, that was the crown jewel of Las Vegas. You know, I was the last headliner to perform there. The first headliner was Elvis. So that, that's how far that, that place goes back. But, you know, as I'm sitting there and, and, and watching, my father was a gambler. So we got treated a little bit better than most people that, you know, Bill Cosby made me a banana split when I was six. So I had already kind of been there, but I hadn't been to, been to, uh, been to Vegas yet because they wouldn't let me in the showroom, but somehow Vegas would let us in the showroom. So as I'm sitting there, I'm realizing that, you know, this, this is what I want. Like it, it wasn't, I wanted a sitcom or I wanted something else. I'm like, this, 
this is a, the connection I want. I want live performance. I want to, I can do that. I mean, th- this guy basically is showing me, you know, what I, how I'm going to spend, you know, the rest of my life, you know, once, once I grow up, but really the genesis of, of wanting to be a comedian, you know, thank God my father gave me this skill and it may be, Maybe he knew something I didn't, but, you know, I grew up in New York City uh, in the 70s, you know, a little a little chubby kid in New York. I had basically two options, learn how to fight or learn how to be funny. And most comedians like me, we developed this talent as a defense mechanism. I mean, it was just, I'm painfully shot, as most comedians out there are. And I, I use this in my uh, talks, in my workshops. Uh, if you met Chris Rock in real life, you wouldn't even believe it was the same guy. You would say to yourself, that must be his brother who goes out there and does it. Or if you met Drew Carey, most comedians painfully, painfully shy. And and, and I was too. I mean, I, even to this day, you know, that's part of, of my genetic makeup and who I am. And and I can overcome it and flip the switch and go out and perform for 72,000 people as I once did at a Houston Texans game. And that's a great story. Do not let us leave this, this situation without me telling you the Houston Texans story. But um, at a young age, I realized that, you know, this. I didn't win the genetic lottery. You know, fighting, you're not good at right away, but I was funny, you know, and and I could convince uh, a bully that was bigger than this bully, make him laugh. And then he would want to, you know, protect me against this bully. So, uh, you know, that that's where I really knew that, you know, I I, I could do this. And then, you know, then seeing somebody do it professionally, just that everything clicked. And then I, you know, I, my father made a deal with me, he said, you, you can't do this till you go to college and get out of college. Um, so I, you know, did a few open mics here and there throughout college, but I, I majored in finance because he has, a, my father's a PhD in finance and I knew that would be very easy to me. So I was able to graduate in three years. And then by 20 years old, I was out there already on the road uh, doing standup. It's got to be scary. You know, like I faced a lot of opposition personally about going into show business and it's, it's not always accepted, especially if you don't come from a show business family. And so this idea that you, you said you weren't, you know, the most genetically gifted and that you were primarily using comedy as a escape mechanism and as a defense mechanism, like to think that, that you could actually make a career out of this, you know, it's one thing to do some stand up gigs, but it's another to like put food on the table for your family. I mean, was there anyone that along the way that uh, was a mentor or gave you a, a sense of belief or picked you up when you were potentially down on this topic? Because I just know my own creative journey, it is, it has been peaks and valleys, man. It's not, you know, I, I can look back and romanticize it and say, oh, it's like been great. And I did this and that. But the reality was it was really tough and, you know, filled with a lot of doubts. And, uh, and I know comedy is, is super hard. Well, one thing I knew about it, and, and, and I'm a son of an immigrant, you know, and, and believe me, I heard it enough time, you know, I did not swim to this country for you to tell joke. My father, even though he loved comedy, I, I don't think he wanted me to go into this. However, something about immigrant parents is they want a job that's been around a long time and will be around a long time. So that's where they go into law, medicine, engineering, you know. So, you know, and comedy goes back to the dawn of time. I, I realized that I have one of the oldest professions uh, because when they were cavemen, there were hunters and gatherers and some schmuck that got up in front of the fire every night and made them laugh. And the science of where humor and laughter comes from really does go back that far. You know, uh, uh, people only laugh for two reasons that are commonality and superiority. And for a long time, it was just commonality. And then the comedian, think about the court jester, you know, that's, that's the first government job. I mean, that's a, that's a famous comedian job that goes back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. Um, the only problem is back then, if you weren't funny, they cut off your head. Now, if you're not funny, uh, you know, they give you an HBO special. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I've always kind of known, you know, that uh, if I could figure out the science and how to do this in front of people live. And once I realized that it was people's number one fear and if I could, you know, most common fear, I guess, 
if I could find a way to beat this, even with my painfully shyness, because I'm going to have to overcome that. If I can do this and do something that most people are painfully you know, afraid of, uh, I'll always be able to make a living. You know, I, I, I didn't see it necessarily as Hollywood's model because I grew up, you know, the audience can't see me. But if you could, you know, I, I grew up with an interesting background. My mother's a Russian Jewish girl from New York and my father's an Iranian Persian uh, named Mohammed, by the way. Imagine bringing home in 1964 to a Jewish family, some Muslim guy that's name is Mohammed. You know, I mean, you can't even convert a Mohammed. First, you got to change his name to Larry. My father didn't want to do that. <laughs> it was almost like my dad bringing home, you know, he's Jewish, bringing home a uh, Methodist woman named Ellie. It was well, about the same. Go. It was about, it was about the same. Eleanor. It was about the same shock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they get together. And then if you could see my picture, which I'm sure you're going to put out there, somehow I came out Puerto Rican. <laughs> so Hollywood was never a real goal of mine because I didn't have anybody. I never saw anybody in Hollywood that was like me. Nobody was looking for the next Persian Jewish, you know, uh, sitcom star. So for me, it was always about the live performance. And I knew if I could beat that, then I'll always have a job. And I promised my father that, that, that I would do that. I would learn how to produce it. I wasn't going to put my, my future in the hands of Hollywood. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson said of that place, it's a plastic hallway full of pimps, thieves, and whores where good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. You know, I understood that about that business pretty early on. And, uh, so I didn't, I didn't see that as my only way out. I mean, I've used Hollywood and I've worked in Hollywood and, you know, not, not to the success of Seinfeld or someone like that. But you know what? In my world right now, I'm, I'm bigger than Seinfeld and bigger than those guys because uh, they may know what I know, but they certainly don't know how to teach it. And yeah, I don't even know in, in you know, 25 years if, if people will even remember who Seinfeld was. Dale Carnegie, they're going to be talking about for a thousand years. You know, and that was something, the business, I think having a father, you know, who was an NYU professor in finance. And I used to sit in the back, which is why I'm such a great teacher at this. I used to watch him teach. And I always thought, you know what, if I can beat this, I probably could eventually just teach it to people. And, 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 uh, you know, so I, I went in full force and even though I have a finance degree, never really used it. Um, uh, though I did use it temping while I was in LA, not making any money <laughs> uh, in the show business world. So, you know, I always fell back on those skills, but you know, I was always kind of in control of my own destiny. And I knew if, uh, if I outworked them, that was pretty good advice I got early on from a guy named Pat Cooper, who's just a legend in, in this business. They, the guy said, you know what, if you just worry about being funny, everything else will be okay. So like, when was it hardest for you? I mean, like, you know, what, what type of obstacles did you face coming up? It certainly couldn't have been a rocket ship to Mars kind of experience. Ooh, no. No, 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 not, not at all. Oh, my goodness. Let me see. Um, hardest was for me. And, as, you know, and I love how, you know, I have all these stories. Um, I got a flu shot about eight years ago and I got something called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And it's you can get it anytime you get any kind of vaccination. And, you know, here I am. First flu shot I ever get. I think I'm doing something good. Three weeks later, all I can move is my right eye. I became completely paralyzed. And I just got married. So, you know, my wife is younger than me. I mean, at some point she's going to have to bathe me in the shower, but she wasn't expecting to do it this early. Um, uh, so while I was sitting, I was so sure I was going to be paralyzed. And everyone, the doctors had, was so sure I was going to be paralyzed that while I was in the hospital, I was already writing jokes uh, for being in a wheelchair or being disabled or, or changing the act to a motivational, uh, you know, talk. And then I was, you know, for six months, I had to recover and I couldn't go on stage and I couldn't, there was no video posts or video, or anything. there was no way for me to kind of keep my skill set sharp. And I had to basically learn how to walk again and feed myself and, and everything after this traumatic experience. So yeah, I'd say that that was where I really had to kind of go, 
you know, you made it, you put all your eggs in this basket and now you, and I wasn't even taking pity on myself. I was just figuring out what I was going to do as soon as I got out of this hospital to feed my wife and, and, you know, take care of my family. So, but this, you know, I'd say that's one of the biggest challenges I had, but, uh, you know, I got fired in Vegas. Uh, you know, first of all, they blew up my casino. That that you know that that that, that was a challenge. And uh, That's a tough but, sign, right? Like, <laughs> and I've been fired before. This is the first time they ever blew the son of a bitch up. You know, and believe me, all my Hollywood friends who were laughing at me. You know, because it's like you know they they're like you must have really sucked. You know, and uh, uh, but uh, you know it, 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 it. But then I, 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 what can I learn from this? And I always think if you look at that and go, you know what. With Hollywood, I'm hoping that somebody else recognizes my talent or can find a way to exploit it or monetize it or anything like that. But when I'm in control of the execution, then it's just like, okay, what do we got to do now? You know, it's it's never been that easy for me. And I've always had to kind of, even though I was been better than them, but you know, in Hollywood, that whether something is good is so far down the list. If, you know, talent is not the number one on the list, you know, it's, can we market this? Is there an audience for this? How can we make money off this? Um, but then eventually, you know, they, they may get down to, uh, uh, is, is the project or the, or, the, or the people good? But for me, it just, you know, there's always been setbacks, but, uh, you know, I mean, I always think one thing about coming from this business where I think it's harder for us, we're always hired to be fired. And we know that going in. So you're always kind of thinking about that and, and thinking about the move, you know, other moves. But I think, you know, being grateful and appreciative and, and, and understanding, those, those are things that, that my parents always put in me. So, you know, I always knew somebody had it worse. And uh, at the end of the day, I can do something on the planet better than most people. I just have to dust myself off, get up and figure something else out. So building on that, I mean, what's, what's the secret for our listeners in finding humor in those dark moments? I mean, you know, again, it's always easy, like when we're sitting here having a great time talking, but when, when we're really up against the wall or something just feels like it's grave or the end of the world, I mean, what's the secret to finding humor and then using that to build on? Sure. Uh, you know, and I'll give you more stories from when I'm a kid, because I think understanding that it's your best choice, it's your first choice and your best choice to get out of this situation or to make this situation better than it is. You know, anytime I'm faced with when I was laying in that bed uh, paralyzed, I knew if I could make the doctors and the nurses laugh, I would get better attention. I would get better care. They, the doctor told me at the end of the day, he used to bring his girlfriend in at night and I would be paralyzed. I, you know, when I, when I, before I could actually lost my speech, I would make them laugh and tell them stories. And because I knew he said he worked harder and he treated me better then he would have treated someone else because he didn't want to see me wind up that way. When I was a kid, I, you know, a bunch of kids in New York City, I grew up in the Bronx, I told you, with some of the most horrible bullies on the planet. We were having a water balloon fight, and one of these monsters decided to put turpentine in his water balloon. And, uh, you know, I led him because you know, I was a chubby kid. I couldn't outrun him. So I turned around and stuck my face out, and he threw a, a water balloon full of turpentine in my eyes. While I'm sitting in the emergency room, uh, with my ba- eyes bandaged up and I could hear the doctor say, I think we could save one eye, but the other one is definitely gone. I just go, Hey, listen, nobody light a match. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm telling jokes and trying to, uh, you know, lighten up the situation so that, uh, you know, I can get their focus and I can get their attention. And, and I think I've always understood and I've been pulled over probably almost 20 times in the last 30 years have never gotten a speeding ticket. Because when that cop walks up to the car, I use the science of what I've learned. I've used the power of humor. So I think I always 
understand. I think people understanding that, you know what, it, it isn't just, just a way to make yourself feel better. It's a way to, to make the situation better because, uh, you know, when we sometimes, you know, we fly and the, the, the flights get canceled and everybody has to run up to the counter and get rebooked. And I just see people going at it with anger and, and you know, you know, animosity and, and all these things that, that aren't going to help that person want to help you, you know. And, it, and also, it wasn't that person's fault. Whereas I slowly stroll up there and I know they're going to do whatever they can because I'm going to come at them from a positive place. And, and uh, you know, I go, only in math do two, two negatives equal a positive. In real life, it just equals more negative stuff. So, um, but because humor is based in in in, in, in the, the hard wiring of our DNA, uh, in empathy, that if you use humor, people are going to be way more empathetic towards your cause. So, you know, I think just understanding the science of it, it, it it's only out of my own self preservation. I think that uh, that that I may be able to develop it so much because I knew that I, I got kind of bad luck. If somebody's going to throw a water balloon with turpentine at somebody, it's going to be me. You know, my mother said if there was a crack in the sidewalk, I'm the one who's going to fall over it. You know, I, I, I was really a sickly kid and I would get hurt a lot. Um, I broke my arm um, in 1980 and shattered it in like nine different places. It was the worst break that the, the doctor had ever seen. And they put me in traction because that's all they knew how to do back then. And I was in the hospital for three months sitting in traction while the arm healed. And other kids would come in and, and uh, you know, and be in the room with me and then they would send them out. Uh, they would get better and go home and I'd still be laying there. But every time they came in, I made them feel good and, and, and made them laugh. And, and uh, you know, the hospital, you know, I remember that time. I remember when I left, you know, the nurses made such a big deal about how I was helpful to them. But I was just like, this this is the easy way. You know, what, what is the other thing to sit here in this hospital and be miserable for three months? You know, that's that's not going to help anybody. Yeah. And it's funny. It's uh, the way you, you position it. It's almost like humor Buddhism, right? You know, we can either accept and, and, and have good thoughts or really fight it and be that obviously not so nice person in line at the airline freaking out on the poor desk agent who, who doesn't really have control. And really the only person that loses is that person freaking out. So what I'm really also hearing from you, Matt, is that like there was this like really deep-seated need to, to be accepted and liked and to fit in. And comedy and humor was your ticket to do that. Sure. Oh, yeah. And I think that's all the ones. Now comedy is in a little different place where it's about niche. You know, it, you're an Asian comedian, you're a mom comedian, you're a, you're a gay comedian, you know, and then the hard wiring has kind of been done f- for you uh, because they, they see themselves in, in, in what you're doing, but such a small sliver of themselves. Uh, but for me... You know, I, 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 again, comedians are broken in the most beautiful way, but, uh, you know, this is the way to get them to like me. And then the trade off is, yeah, I can make you feel this amazing way if I can make you laugh. And, you know, I wasn't, uh, you know, the, the best athlete, you know, so that wasn't going to be my way in that I wasn't, uh, you know, a great singer or a dancer or, or any of these things. I, I did take martial arts as a kid, but, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, actually a great story to finish up the other story. So my arm was in traction and then I'll answer your finish answering the other question, but just how the universe works. And, and that's the thing is it was always kind of validated, you know, I mean, it'd be one thing if I was doing it and then wasn't getting success or the universe wasn't pointing me in the right direction. And now as, as I grow up and I start to work with entrepreneurs and, and the more enlightened people out there, uh, I realized that this is actually is a real thing, manifestation and, you know, all the things that I intuitively understood as a, as a kid and, and, you know, and, and, you know, young comedian, you know, it actually is real, real things, you know, 
But so I take martial arts as a kid and uh, I'm, I don't, can't imagine what the age I am, nine years old. But I used to take two city buses to get to the karate school because back then <laughs> your parents let you take a city bus at that age. Um, so I'm waiting for the city bus in my little karate uniform. And my arm had been in traction so long that I couldn't even really use it. It, it, it healed, but I couldn't extend it, you know, any more than. You know, it, it was like a right angle. It, it sat on there and I couldn't do much with it because it had sat in traction for so long. So I'm waiting for uh, the bus and some drunk comes by, sees me in my karate uniform and beats the living crap out of me, breaks the arm again. But in breaking the arm again, when it healed, I actually got more mobility with it, more range. And that actually turned out to be a good thing. So, again, just another little story there. But uh, really understanding that uh, for me, that this was going to be my purpose, you know, I mean, the court jester had his purpose, you know, in there. And, it, you know, you think about all the performers. He kept the court jester by his side, because if you're going to understand the humor of a people, you'll understand everything about them. And we're going back to our original thing about thinking about the audience first, that, you know, this was going to be my way. Otherwise, you, you know, it was my quickest route to being popular and being accepted and everything else. It was just the same kind of thing, self-preservation. So, you know, as a comedian, I need the laughs. I mean, you know, I, I go, people go, you know, go, uh, you really killed them because, uh, you know, they laugh so hard. And I go, it wasn't the laughter that, that, that made me know I was killing them. It was the silences. It was getting 300 people to shut the hell up and listen to every single word and be so engaged and hinged on, on everything that I'm saying that, you know, uh, I, I, that's what I want. You know, I mean, I, it's not that I need the laughs. It's just that, I have a lot to say and I've been through so much. And I think, you know, things like this, when you're talking about everybody has a story and why I love working with entrepreneurs, I love telling it, you know, I love telling my story. And that's eventually what brought me to Vegas was a, a one man show that I wrote called, called 40 is not the new 20. And um, it, it became not just my story, it became our story. And I think good comedians look at the world like it's a funny place. Great ones don't. But in doing that, you're able to tell you know, where you're just sitting there watching a comedian go, he knows my life. You know, he knows me so well. And, and, you know, and as the business has grown, I found ways to do good with the talent as well, you know, and, and, and go perform at Walter Reed and Bethesda Naval Hospital. And, and I think that, you know, knowing that if the world ended tomorrow, the way we know it, I would still get up in the morning and go to work that's something I need as well, you know? So it's not just, oh, I, I'm, a, you know, I'm an attention whore and I need that. It's like, I need to know that, that I'm doing what I was born to do. And uh, I, I, I just pursue that every single day. That's so inspiring, Matt. And, you know, you also touched on just a second ago and something I like to talk about quite a bit is that in order for something to be universal, we have to tell our story and it has to be our story. And we have to tell it, you know, with specifics and details in order for it to become shared and universal. And I know that in your show, uh, 40 is not the new 20. Uh, that's exactly what you do. You, go, you get very personal and you, you talk about your life a lot. And you've even done that in this uh, episode where you've, you've really revealed, you know, this mix between your Iranian father and your Russian Jew mother. And I mean, these are details like you were kind of alluding to in your other example of stand up. And I think it was Derek with the, uh, the church that when we layer these details, it allows us to insert ourselves into the story, but then it brings that story to be more universal. And and not just seem like it's braggadocious, you know? I mean, you know, I always think about when I tell that story, and it's the way I always tell the story. And I think, you know, if you can have these stories kind of preloaded, because what do we, what we get asked all the time, you know, how'd you get into this business? And, you know, people may tell that 10 different ways, 
and, and, you know, have varying degrees of success. That's what joke writing is. I'm going to tell the joke the same way, give or take, you know, some words and, and, and back to our original point of, you know, how can I make this easily digestible to the audience? But, you know, we, we tell our story. But if you tell that, have that thing preloaded every single time and it's the most effective use of it. So if people ask me, oh, how'd you get into this business? And I go, well, I've done over 6,000 shows. Uh, I'm a Las Vegas headliner. I'm doing this since I was born. Da, da, da. But if I embed that message in, in story and, and use humor, then it just is a cool way to communicate with people. And it doesn't seem like you're just trying to do it. You know, to show people how great you are, you know, or to show, you know, telling your story and, and how we listen to story, you know, how we're programmed to listen to story is in a totally different part of the brain than than information is. So if I just come out there and give them the information, it's not nearly as effective as embedding that information in story. That's a good time for us to move into, you know, you were doing the show. It was so good. The casino blew up and into smoke. And uh, we're going to take that as a positive blow up that the, uh, that the Riviera went up in, in smoke and crumbled. And then you kind of flipped out of it. And I, and I believe you're still doing uh, stand up in clubs and things like that, but you've also uh, formed a company called they laughed you win. And it's a name that really says it all, you know, why does humor win? You've touched on it a little bit, but like, you know, I, I love the name of the company and we can talk talk about that a little bit and what you're sure. doing now, but like, why does humor win? Um, you know, cause again, it's rooted in empathy. It's one of the two basic forms of communication we're given at birth. We're either given, you know, those comedy and tragedy masks, or, or you know, they, they're basically speaking to that, you know, that, that, that when you're a baby, you can, you, you can either be sad and cry, or you can be happy. And both of those are rooted in empathy. The reason your mother comes and picks you up and holds you, which is basically all babies want, or, you know, changes you or feeds you is because you were able to communicate with sadness that, you know, and she was like, oh, I don't want the baby to be sad anymore. But then we use happiness the same way. And so I think it's it's just, you know, again, how we're programmed and hardwired. Uh, but its basis is an empathy. So, you know, in this world now that's almost void of it, you know, I mean, any human connections were so fractured that, you know, that's where that's that's the real power of humor in terms of a, of a form of communication, because it's it's it, go, it goes back to, you know, you know, basically when we come into this world. So uh, everybody has it. And it also crosses cultural boundaries. You know, I mean, the, here in Vegas, uh, a lot of the casinos I work with are really, really excited about me training uh, the staff that connects with the with the general public uh, in humor because they get so many international visitors and humor can also be done non-verbally, you know, and, and physically and, and so many different ways. So it has so many modalities and, and so many ways to connect that, you know, every culture on the planet has it. So if you can learn to use humor, you can communicate and connect with basically everyone, you know, all over the globe. Yeah. It's the universal language. Yeah. So that, that all sounds awesome, but mm -hmm. And I know the answer to this from your standpoint. Do you think being funny can be taught? You know, I was always led to believe you were either funny or you're born with it or, you, or you're not. You know, talk to me a little bit about that. No, absolutely. And I hear people all the time, you know, they go, you can't teach people to be funny. And I go, no, no, you can't teach people how to be funny. You know, I mean, part of, you know, me doing this and, and, and every time I, I work with somebody, I go, you have to accept that this is a Mr. Miyagi Danielson relationship, that I'm going to have you doing things. But it's only because funny lives inside of all of us. I mean, I ask people, believe me, people, it's again, the misconception, but people also think uh, that they're getting up and speaking in front of people is something that we're born to be afraid of. And it's not, we've been taught that. So it's kind of another, you know, uh, you know, misnomer that you can't teach somebody how to be funny. We're all funny. I'm just helping people let it come out. You know, I'm teaching them the science 
of, 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 you know, the formula and the words that you have to do, but, you know, and mining for your truth. You know, I think understanding that, you know, all this material has to be your truth and, and, you know, an ounce of truth is worth more than a pound of lie. And comedy is about exaggeration, but its basis has to be something that actually happened. And then we can build exaggeration. So, you know, and I, and I found the formula to funny, you know, I mean, it basically is, you know, you set up the, the joke, you describe the situation, you deliver the punchline. And then since you've already got their mind in that direction, because this is really about controlling their minds and getting them to see your vision and, and uh, uh, you know, why you, you know, why you think this is a funny thing, but also understanding where humor comes from. You know, I teach that too. Like people only laugh at a commonality and superiority. When I wrote the show 40s, not the new 20, I go back to a time of doing standup where there'd be one comedian for the whole family. You know, grandma, dad, kids would sit down and watch, you know, Bob Hope or, or uh, Bing Crosby or, you know, uh, George Burns. You know, we would sit there and watch him and be able to make the whole family laugh. And I go, now that Hollywood. And remember, Comedy Club came out in the 70s. Stand-up comedian as, as, as an actual big business, you know, is, is, about as, is about as old as rap music. You know, I remember Sugar Hill Gang and Comedy Clubs kind of opened up at the same time. You know, before that, you know, it was just... There was a comedian, but there was no place for you to go really watch him other than the Catskills or Vegas or, or, or whatever. It's really kind of changed o o over the years um, to being now that we're going to niche you because Hollywood's involved and they want to monetize it. So they go like a movie. It's not like a movie is for everyone. It's a movie is for it's an African-American movie or it's a, a movie for young people or it's a movie for old people or it's a, you know, a, you know, a, a summer movie or whatever it is. So. That part has changed. But for me, it's always just been about making people laugh, you know, us as a species. So, you know, I think that that I was lucky to come up in the time I did, because after that, you know, Hollywood really got their their dirty little hands <laughs> uh, around this thing and, and kind of ruined the industry. I mean, you know, when I started, you know, I could do 10 shows a week at open mics in front of real audiences. You know, the comedy clubs really nurtured the talent. And, you know, that that I think when you when you ask me, did I have any mentors? I actually graduated college and then went right on the road. So graduated in May. By June, I'm on the road with with Drew Carey, with Ray Romano, with, you know, I mean, I got a, a degree in finance, but I got a PhD in comedy from these guys. And we used to stay in condos in the beginning. Um, so you'd stay at a comedy club for a whole week because it was the only place people could consume, you know, this. Now Netflix has kind of changed the game. But we would stay in a condo with, you know, Ron White and Robin Williams, even, you know, I spent two days with uh, working a gig and they taught me everything I need to know about the comedy club business. You know, I don't think I understood that part of it. And it was great. I mean, it was, uh, but it goes back to a different time where now it's, you know, if you're a young millennial, here's your comedian. You know, if you, if you like puppets, here's your comedian, you know, it's not like somebody who goes, I, I have the skill to be able to make people laugh. And, and like I said, when I go out to my uh, talks or, or uh, do a workshop, I'll ask the audience who here thinks they're funny. And maybe maybe 20 percent of the hands will go up. So I understand that people do believe that, you know, this is something you're born with. But when I teach them the actual science of it, we're all born with it. So that kind of gets them out of their own way to go, OK, I can do this. And and if you've never made anyone laugh, then then I go, OK then maybe, maybe, maybe you shouldn't, you and I might not should be, I mean, I don't want to make this job harder than it has to be, but there are, everyone made somebody laugh in their life. So everybody is funny. I mean, I just think that we like to believe the, the other way because it, it, it keeps us in our comfort zone. 
because funny is a risk. You know, I mean, you, 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 you have to keep being funny. Once you make people laugh, you're that guy, you know, I mean, I can't go to a party and not be on and just enjoy myself like a regular person. So I think, you know, we leave that up to like, you know, Jim, our idiot friend, who's very funny. And, and every group has a guy that the only reason they keep him in that group is because he's funny. He brings nothing else to the equation other than he can make us laugh when we all get together. And I think that only perpetuates the, the you know, the, the, the misconception that, uh, you know, some people are born funny and some people aren't. But every baby I ever met is hilarious. <laughs> We're all born comedians, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're known for being funny. And so what's it like to always be put on the spot and, you know, people want you to be funny and, and things like that. You say you always have to be on, but I'm, I'm oh. sure it's exhausting a little bit. Oh, it, it, but I love it. I mean, you know, again, it's, it's who I am. And there are some comedians out there, even famous ones, Bill Moore, for example, you know, not, not everyone in this is the, was the class clown. And this is going to ring true with you is that most, a lot of comedians like John Stewart and uh, they were English majors, you know, and they, and that's the thing is we all wordsmiths. So if you know more words than I do, you already have an advantage over most other people if someone else can kind of teach you how to do this. But for me, I was the, I was the class clown, but not every class clown does this. You know, the funniest guys I know don't do this for a living. The guys I grew up with in New York, you know, they're like, I'm, you know, they're funny, but, uh, you know, they're, they're just not funny on stage, you know, which is a big part of this. And and, you know, one of the first books I wrote was called The Three Rings of Stand Up Comedy. And and it's really where my science and my hacking the system uh, really came into play, because uh, first first place I ever taught this uh, um, was the Smithsonian Institute. So we, I started in Washington, D.C., and they had been getting a lot of requests from their members that, you know, they wanted a comedy course. So they came to the improv. I happened to be there that night. They go, hey, can you teach a course at, at the Smithsonian? And not even knowing, you know, what a big deal it was, I, of course, said yes, which is also why I got why I, I performed for 72,000 people at the Houston Texans game. But I realized it was the Smithsonian and, and I, I had to take this to a level that nobody's ever taken it to. So I broke out the whole process of, of this job, which is what I call the three rings. So there's the public speaking ring because at its core, stand-up comedy is no nothing more than a public speaking situation. And then the performing ring, which is how you elevate the words and, and, and act them out and, you know, make them come to life. And then the joke writing ring. So, but if you don't have a good foundation in all three of those rings and break out each component, once you get up on stage, you know, it's such a solid chain I build for people that, uh, you know, they, there's no way they cannot succeed because, you know, it, it, it's everyone else is just thinking about what they're going to say, what they're going to say, and not necessarily understand that there's, that even non-verbally, your body language says so much about you. If you don't learn how to speak, you know, non-verbally with, with your body language and open gestures, you know, uh, people are afraid of public speaking. Imagine how they are afraid, how much they must be afraid of a comedian that they don't know. People used to call the improv and go, who's there that, you know, night? And if they didn't know the name, they'd go, is he funny? But this is a professional comedy club. You wouldn't call the opera and go, who's there tonight? Oh, can they sing? But, you know, comedy, when it's done well, is the best form of entertainment. I truly believe that. But when it's not done well, it's the worst form of entertainment because it's a stranger just up there talking to you about you about stuff you don't care about. So for me, it's about the math. And if somebody wants me to make them laugh, I am your best first choice because, first of all, it's what I love to do. And second of all, I, I can figure it out in milliseconds. You know, and that's why... This new program I'm doing where I'm taking CEOs and entrepreneurs and teaching them stand up. The thing that makes it so easy for me is that I can rewrite their material and fix it in real time. So it's not like they give me their material and I have to go work on it and then we come back. It's just I can see it. You know, I mean, it's I've done it so many times and I, I hang out with a lot of the poker players here 
uh, in Vegas, Phil Ivy, and, and and a lot of them liked uh, the comedy show. So they, you know, they, they come to me, but there were some of these guys that were in the, the kind of based on that movie, bringing down the house or the book, bringing down the house, they've been banned from casinos. So when they want to come to my show, I have to set it up for them. So I have to call the security and have them because they can't be left alone in the casino. If they do, they will beat the casino in, 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 in a few hours. But, uh, you know, these guys talk about poker and they go, it's not even poker anymore. It's just math. I mean, they can see things that the average person doesn't, but you know, that's from doing this 50 years of my life. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm able to do it. So when people want me to make them laugh, I mean, it would be a burden if it wasn't so easy and it wasn't such such who I am. You know, I wish I could sing or dance, but I can't. Yeah, all I got to <laughs> offer them is my funny. <laughs> wow. Wow, Matt. Thank you so much. So what, what's next for you? Where, where's this going? Uh, you know, something I'm finding, um, you know, in, in, in doing this is is how much humor has been taken from us. And, 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 and all the reason we laugh is it's the release of nervous tension. So, you know, if, if you laugh at a commonality, it's because, you know what, we're all going through the same stuff and it's great that we can kind of look at it and laugh. And if we laugh at a superiority, it's only because we're laughing at somebody else's pain, which is what I teach people to stay away from. If there's a victim in the joke and it's not you, don't tell it. However, when we talk about branding, and, and telling your story, why is your brand better than another brand? Superiority absolutely works there. You know, I mean, you know, can you believe that this is the software that these other people are using? Or can you believe this is the science that these other people are using? So, but I do believe that humor is given to us for a reason. And it's been taken from us because for a few people who have used it, you know, in the wrong way, um, now we don't have it anymore especially in the, in the corporate space, you know, and, and all the studies about the Sunday blues and, and, you know, how people don't feel connected. And, and I understand that humor, you know, when you have a funny boss, you feel emotionally safe, you feel connected, you know, even from the selfish reasons, you know, you that, that employee is going to be more productive, be more creative, you know, wellness from a mental health standpoint to an actual physical wellness standpoint, humor in the workplace can help that. So my goals are definitely to, to help entrepreneurs be successful and, and help people be better speakers. But the more I get into this, the more I'm like, I'm exactly where I need to be because from a corporate culture standpoint, I don't know if they have another plan. We've been so fractured. I felt like humanity. And I've watched people for 30 years in my church, which is the comedy club. And it always you know, hit me that sometimes they don't show up, you know, ready to laugh and ready to have a good time. And I'm like, what has been done to these people? And I have to break through so much just to kind of find the soul inside of them because, you know, life is hard now and, and humor might be our only way back. So, you know, I have bigger aspirations here to, to really, you know, bring my programs and, and, uh, I've hooked up with some other people who are along the same lines that want to make a more joyful uh, experience for the employees. And it's no longer just having a fun Taco Tuesday. It's really going to have to give them a new way to connect and communicate with each other. So, you know, I, I, I get them. I'm, you know, I'm in the process of writing the book, They Laugh, You Win, which, you know, uh, I, I do believe could be a series, you know, uh, like the dummies book. So They Laugh, You Win to, to, to pick up women. They Laugh, You Win to... Uh, you know, uh, 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 in marketing, sales, you know, whatever it is, because of where we are and, and the fact that our conscious minds, you know, are almost to the brink, you know, we, we're inundated with so much information that if you just give them more information, it does have no place to go. But if you actually use the science of humor and break through to the subconscious, that's the powerful thing, you know, in business, whether you're using it externally or internally. 
the ability to communicate and connect and engage is the ultimate tool. So Matt, like, can you share with us one of your favorite movies or books or something uh, that uh, is just, you know, a piece of uh, popular culture that you really love? Uh, favorite movie, uh, the original Secret Life of Walter Mitty. I always thought if I did have to go to Hollywood and, and, um, and uh, you know, put up with all of that at the end of this, it would, the would, the payoff would be remaking the secret life of Walter Mitty and, and a bunch of comedians had a chance at it. Uh, Jim Carrey, I think probably would have been in his high, in his heyday, but you understand the movie business, you know, it may take 15 years, 20 years to get a movie made. And they had, you know, 20 actors attached to it. Uh, but I, that was one of my favorite ones. And, uh, uh, I, I used to fantasize while I was on the road and, and, you know, that, that one day I would be able to maybe remake that movie. But, uh, Peaceful Warrior is a movie I watch from time to time, you know, and and, uh, you know, realize that, you know, we are our thoughts and and, uh, you know, re- really like that one. But uh, first movie I ever saw in the movie theater was Magnificent Seven, the original with my dad. So that one's always really special to me, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's why my dad and I always connected was over movies. And yeah. uh, we, we were also really big into comedies, Caddyshack and, oh, sure. uh, you know, things like that. So, Matt, how do people learn more about what you're doing and get in touch with you if they have an interest in learning more about comedy and bringing that into their lives, their business uh, or the workplace? Uh, then go to the website. Obviously, they laugh. You dot com. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, really active on LinkedIn. Um I'm sure you might post a link at the end of this, but, uh, you know, it, it, it really, you know, I love talking about it. And, and for all your listeners, if, if you just want to learn a little bit more about, about what I'm doing and, and how it might help you, because, I, you know, I wish I just did one thing and I go, okay, you know what? I just help people become better speakers. But the more I get into this, the more I realize, you know, it's, it's, there's so much more here. And, and this, the data on terms of, of connecting, um, you know, on Facebook, it, 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 by 2020, 80% of all the content on Facebook is going to be video, you know, and then yet, and, and all the gurus, when you're starting a business, they go like this. And you were tremendous at this podcast, by the way, not that I doubted anything else, but everyone, they tell everyone to start a podcast, but you're just a regular guy, you know, I mean, you, you don't have any, now everyone has to be entertaining. So even how I'm figuring this out, once I learn your business and, and what you're doing, I'm sure I can find a way that we can use, we can leverage the power of humor to help you, which is, you know, makes me at the end of the day, you know, so happy to, uh, to see people, you know, they, 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 I see the video before we do it and, and I get, you know, webinars are another big thing. And the guy sent me his webinar and goes, Oh, what did you think about it at seven minutes? I go, if you think anybody is still watching this thing at seven minutes, you are so delusional, um, that, you know, we, but I can teach you how to use story and humor and engagement, you know, to make sure that, uh, you know, you're not doing all of this just to do it. You know, I mean, it, uh, it's really strategic uh, about it and, and it's just gotten worse. So without, you know, without guys like you and me, I, I fear for them. I really, truly fear for them because uh, I understand the audience as I think you do and know why the, what we're doing is so valuable. Humor really has this opportunity just to make the world a better place, to make our uh, daily lives better, to make our work life better, to have more connection. And for me, myself personally, I think for the people that I encounter, we, we're all you know yearning for more connection, not less. Now, I, I never sit down and no one's ever like, I want less connection. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, like, like let's connect less, you right, know, right. you know, for parents out there, you know, to connect with your kids who are like buried into Fortnite and the screens and things like that to use humor and to get their attention. And I think Matt makes a great point. Like if you don't get someone's attention right in the beginning of your webinar, of your speech, and, and you know, and this doesn't have to be a keynote, you know, if you're just trying to get people to think the same as you at your company, if you're a leader trying to get people uh, rowing in the same direction, you need to get their attention. You need to make a connection. You need to develop some empathy uh, so that you can all be going in the same direction. It's not just about skill sets. It's just not about capabilities, but it's really about people believing that they have a connection with you. And, and like Matt, I believe that humor is an amazing, amazing way to do this. Matt, we will link to all these resources in the show notes, maybe some of your stand-up comedy, oh, that's if that's okay. Give oh, people please. a taste of, of, of your good stuff. You know, Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with uh, at this point? No, but it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, whenever I speak or, or do a, uh, do a, do a, a workshop or anything, I always kind of do a case study at the end by performing a half hour of standups. So just again, your, your instincts and uh, your, your knowledge and then and, and command of this, of, of what you're trying to provide for your audience. I think it's great. I love when I can show them the standup because that basically is the proof in the pudding, you know? Uh, so uh, thank, thank, thanks so much for that. And this was awesome. Uh, and any of your listeners, uh, I say, run stuff by me. You know, if you, if you have something that you need, you know, I don't mind taking 10 minutes to sit there and explain and help you with one little thing, because hopefully that'll be our gateway to working together. So consider me as a resource. And, and as you know, Mark, I, I can't wait for us to, to connect in, uh, again in real life. Well, thanks, Matt. It's a real generous offer. And, and before I forget, you said that you were going to tell us the Houston Texans story. Oh, so yes, I'm not going to yes, let you get yes. off without without telling that story. Yeah, no, no. So I, uh, <laughs> well, part of you know, you maybe this this way too is that you know I think my approach to this was always say yes and then figure out how to do it later. You know, I mean, because it's always better to get the gig than than it is and then figure out how to do it. So uh, it was New Year's Eve, and uh, I was on the road with a buddy of mine, Alonzo Bowden, who had uh, who had one last comic standing. And uh, we were working uh, New Year's Eve at the Improv, and it turned out to be the Houston Texans' last game of the season, and it was in their inaugural season. So they were doing fan appreciation day on the last game because they certainly weren't going to the playoffs. So we just kind of called up a buddy of ours at the union and said, hey, can you call the Texans and get them to give us some tickets? And they said, he said, sure. So then we get them. They said, it's fan appreciation day. Would you guys be willing to, to get on the mic at every play stoppage and just announce a seat and tell them what they want? And, and oh, by the way, we have six minutes to kill at halftime. Would you be willing to go down and do a little bit of stand up and give away a car? And then, you know, since we had just been saying yes so much, I realized, oh, my goodness, what did we just commit to? We have to now do six minutes of stand up in front of 72,000 people outside at halftime. I never realized how far 50 yards was, you know, I mean, I, and I'm like, I'm not there yet. So I get to the, the 40, get to the 50, you know, and then I told, joked about the 50 yard line. And basically I kind of didn't even have a plan until I got there. And then, uh, you know, I say sometimes three, five minutes can be five short minutes when it's going well, when it's not going well, it's 300 long seconds and you feel every single one of them. But, uh, it, it's an experience where I, you know, I'm glad I did it. Uh, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd ever do it again. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for stopping by the Baby Got Backstory podcast and sharing your story. Uh, I think it's going to be one that's really inspirational. And I think that it's really going to reshape the way people think about, you know, what is humor, how to work it into your life, like who's capable of being funny and just what place it has in our, in our business lives. So, so thank you so, so much. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You got it, man. Thank you. Now the kids in their car seat, right? Car seat, great invention, saves a lot of kids' lives. But I think that's what messed with their head a little bit, right? Because they sit in that chair like it's their little throne, don't they? Right? Just... Right? They give a shit that you're driving a car at 70 miles an hour. They just sit back, barking out demands like they're Caesar. That... I believe in the juice box. Please, some goldfish, my men. Then I'm finding Nemo, he amuses me! <sighs> Five minutes later, take him away! I've grown tired. Bring me the one they call SpongeBob. And that is comedian Matt Kazam. And Matt and I have more in common than he mentioned during our interview. I, I, I too was laid up in bed a couple years ago with West Nile virus, which is a neurological disease. And it really forced me to slow down and prioritize what's important in my life. I would say that was definitely a low point in my career as well. And so it's interesting that we share that. And we also share a tangential relationship with Chris Rock. Uh, I met Chris while working on the movie Osmosis Jones, where Chris was the voice of a white blood cell and immunity cop named Ozzy. And I got to meet Chris when he came in and recorded his lines. And, and true to Matt's assessment, he was incredibly quiet and down to earth. At least he was back then. So I'm glad we share those two things, Matt. And to the listeners, thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Baby Got Backstory podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to keep the conversation going, you can always reach me on all social media platforms. I'm simply at Mark Gutman, Mark with a C, M-A-R-C-G-U-T-M-A-N, or send me an email directly at podcast at wildstory.com. All those go directly to me and I'll answer everyone personally. I welcome all feedback, show ideas, and any story questions you might have about telling your story or that of your brand. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business.